0: It's time now for After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to the Monday edition of After 9 on CFIS. Uh, I'm Stuart Parker, your Monday host. And... uh, Today's show, we have a bit of a mixed bag. The first, um, we're giving over to um, Sean who, um who is going to be offering practical advice for how to um, be suddenly consigned to the sofa in the middle of nowhere um, and survive. And uh, in the second half, we have much more of our usual political fare, Um, Art Vandenberg, um, former city councilor, first elected green politician in Canada, tech entrepreneur, uh, inventor of a stratospheric glider. Uh, We'll be on to talk about uh, electric vehicles, the so-called Clean BC plan, and the personality cult around Elon Musk. So, uh, let me begin by um, welcoming Sean. We have him on the line from somewhere outside of Austin, Texas. Morning, Sean. Hello, Stuart. So, um... I, uh, I I want to um, I want to begin by uh, by asking. So, how is it that um, you um, found yourself in this situation where? You were um, where you're on a farm way outside of Austin, um, largely um, stranded while the government adjudicates various things about you. As the, I know you're in the inventor of the too big to fail diet, but I understand that that's unrelated <laughs> to the current predicament.
1: It is totally unrelated to the current predicament. Um, I don't know how long you want me to make the story, but uh, back and around. 2010, uh, my health started to noticeably decline. I, I was living out on a farm um, east of Austin, Texas, about an hour from the city, um, for various economic reasons. Uh, my wife had a horse, <laughs> so a uh, st- factory in the cost of boarding a horse in the city versus living out in the country where there's space for it. Uh, It made more economic sense for me to simply commute into town. Um, Well, (laughs) as my health started to decline, it became more and more difficult for me to commute into town. Um, I had what turned out to be a degenerative connective tissue disorder, um, which has various symptoms, but it it, is very painful, uh, made it difficult for me to be available for long days of work, um, which... I simply struggled through for many years, but as as the symptoms progressed, it became more and more difficult for me to make commute, um, which I handled for a number of years, and eventually transitioned to working from home. uh, But then after a couple of years of, of grace, once again, my symptoms became too difficult to be available for eight hours of working on the phone a day, and Eventually, that's my symptoms progressed to the point to where, <clears throat> excuse me, to where my employer no longer wanted to employ me. I, I wasn't able to, to meet their terms of employment for a, a steady 40-hour work week. Um,
0: but the, um, the U.S. government and the state of Texas do not believe you're disabled, right?
1: Well, the state of Texas does.
0: I, I oh, my do goodness. Receive,
1: I do receive food assistance from the state of Texas. And the state of Texas has recognized that I'm disabled, so they don't expect me to be on the hunt for work. Most, most people in the United States would not receive even food assistance if they were impoverished, unless they could somehow prove they, they shouldn't be out there hustling for work. Um, and so I've proved to the satisfaction of the state of Texas that there's no point in, in asking me to go hustle for work. I can't work anyway. The, the federal government is an entirely different case. Um, and, and I was actually screwed over in a two-stage process. Uh, the first stage was the long-term disability insurance that I paid for through my employer. Um, long-term disability is a supplemental insurance. I don't know if it's the same in Canada. It's often offered as an employer-funded benefit that you can pay a little bit into in the United States. Um uh, my thinking all along was that if I, became if I became disabled to the point of where I couldn't work at all, long-term disability insurance would help me out. As it turns out, <laughs> a few years back, um, regulation of long-term disability insurance was moved from the states. Um, each state in the U.S. has an insurance board that regulates insurers and how they behave in the state, and if they aren't paying claims, for example... The state will prohibit them from continuing to provide insurance in the state, um, which works fairly reasonably well. Well, as a reform, they moved enforcement of long term disability regulations to the federal government. However, at the same time, they did not fund any regulation <laughs> authority at the federal level. Um, so there's essentially no one enforcing the rules for long term disability in the United States. Um, so when I filed my claim for long-term disability, thinking I wasn't going to need to bother with the, the health gate that is Social Security, I, I could simply collect on the long-term disability I had paid into for decades. Um, I discovered that they were not interested in paying, <laughs> and, and I had no real prospect of forcing them to pay. So I had to accept a very small, and by small I mean maybe. What, 10% of what I was owed um, in one small lump sum. Um, and that's just what I was owed for a couple-year period. There was no prospect whatsoever of me receiving the full 20 years of coverage I was, I was owed. Um, and then they, I had to accept that settlement and basically go away. Which thrust me into the process of applying for Social Security, which is a gas nightmare in the United States.
0: So, um, and that process goes on after several years. There's a series of appeals and on it goes. It, I have been denied once, and which was a process
1: that took over two years. Um, that's two years for receiving no assistance at all. There's no, we'll, we'll offer you a little bit of help while we wait to sort this out. That, that doesn't happen in the United States at all. So two years of waiting. um I, my lawyer was not the best because there isn't really any... It's, it's, it's a process that's utterly impossible to handle without a lawyer. Um, even the federal government urges you that you're going to need a lawyer because no normal, good-intentioned party can address the process without legal representation. Um, my lawyer's strategy was perhaps not the best. I was denied Um And which threw me right back into the process. When you're denied, there isn't an expeditious appeals process. You are simply, well, let me correct that. There is an appeals process by which you can wait roughly 18 to 24 months to have an appeal heard. There's one court in the entire country of the United States, I think it's in Virginia, that handles those appeals. And all they will rule on is whether or not your judge made an actual procedural mistake in your trial. Um, If they did not make a mistake in your hearing, then your appeal will be rejected. So the system urges you not to do that, because if you do undergo that appeal process and your appeal is rejected, and I believe like 80 or 90 percent of them are rejected, the the clock will have run out your eligibility to, to actually appeal, uh, apply a second time for Social security so by appealing the first rejection you will run out the clock and prevent yourself from a, from applying a second time
0: so, so that's that's where you are now you're part way through the second application I'm
1: part way through the second application um, it could be anywhere from another 12 to 18 months before I even get uh, a date assigned for my hearing. And who knows when that hearing will be? It could be another two years.
0: So this really, so you're really living a, a Franz Kafka esque existence. This is um, pretty much um, all Kafka could have envisaged for um, developing a connective tissue disease and, and trying to uh, trying to survive. Now. Obviously, there are some creative survival strategies in all this, but um, I was struck on, um, on Facebook um, uh, when, you know, we we're corresponding about um, horrific, uh, not horrific in terms of terrible, but just terribly bad films. And you, um, you put up a trailer for the film Ramekin. How the heck did you find this thing?
1: Well, the thing is, um, as Sean, we you use any of the various Sean. streaming video services, um, they all we... have an algorithm. You train the algorithm you can to, hear to Okay, I
0: can. can you hear me? Not coming through here. Okay. Oh, sorry, carry on, Sean.
1: Okay, uh, I'm still coming there, through.
0: Though. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. We got you now. Okay, perfect. So uh, as you use the various
1: streaming video services, you train their algorithm to offer you more videos um, that they think will appeal to you. Now, the joyous thing about these algorithms is they're often terribly broken, and the, the companies want them to suggest as much of their content as they think could feasibly appeal to you. So once I've watched a few great horror movies like, say, Hereditary, which is available, I believe, on the Amazon Prime um, Amazon Prime service right now, it'll start offering you any horror movie at all, hoping that maybe you're going to watch some of this content that they've thrown on there from various... In the case of Amazon Prime, they will snap up pretty much any low-budget, independent perhaps no budget movie project they can at least put together a thumbnail image that looks like there's a real movie behind it. And they'll throw that up on their service and include it as part of their thousands of movies that are available to watch. And and Ramekin is a fine example of that genre. It is a movie. And I I don't want to offend the creator if they they happen to be listening. (laughs) It's a creative idea at the very least. Um, What I assume is the creator's girlfriend Plays the, the the main character, the character that's on screen for, I'd say, 100% of the movie, um, who moves into her grandmother's apartment after her grandmother's death. Uh, I believe this is set in New York, so the, the apartment is a great prize. And realizes that there's a haunted ramekin. <laughs> and by <laughs> ramekin, is... I mean an unassuming, simple ceramic dish that, that she found in this apartment, and the ramekin ends up running her life. And it's utterly ridiculous. Um, The movie involves a great many scenes of this poor actress clutching a ramekin to her head, making spooky voices. It's just an utterly ridiculous excuse for a movie. But you know, if you're stranded out in the the wilderness of rural Texas with uh, no ability to drive and no, no funds to go do anything else... Videos like this are a, a, a great boon. That, that'll lead up two hours of your life. It'll leave you laughing, and uh, there you go.
0: <laughs> so, would you say that Ramekin is the? Um, have we actually hit the bottom of the barrel with Ramekin? Are there things of comparable awfulness that uh, that people can get from Amazon Prime?
1: Oh, there are things that are much, much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Rankin as... at the very least, this, uh, this actress, I think, was a theater major. She looked like she had perhaps starred in some Tennessee Williams production or two in, in her high school days. She, she understood the concept of acting. <laughs> uh, there, there are many movies floating around on Amazon Prime where you where you look and the thumbnail image for the movie just looks like Some badly photoshopped image that someone threw together on their home computer. None of the names involved are recognizable. There's misspellings in the description of the movie. Um, And you you click on one of those and it's just a horrendous, perhaps a bunch of people with minor mental disabilities of their own. Got together with some sort of digital recording equipment and ran around their backyard screaming for a few hours. There are plenty of those.
0: I I had no idea that Jeff Bezos uh, had this kind of resource for us in terms of um, this uh, this this trove of stuff. So what what could Amazon's motivation possibly be for acquiring all of this? Well, uh, they. Uh, Initially, in the comp- there's, a, there's a
1: fierce competition going on right now for streaming video customers between Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. And very soon, the Disney similar service is coming into, into being, I think in just another week or two now, there's going to be a, a monolithic presence in that, in that competition, I imagine, given their library of content. Amazon didn't start out with a library of content that in any way matched Netflix. And although now they are producing content that matches Netflix in quality, uh, there are certain shows on Amazon Prime originals like uh, Man in the High Castle is very good. Uh, The Boys is very good. There are various other independent productions by Amazon Prime. They're just as good as something you'd see in a theater. or or on Netflix as a Netflix creation. Initially, they had to build a catalog that matched Netflix's in volume. (laughs) And my sense is acquiring some of these backward hillbilly productions was probably rather cheap for them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I wouldn't even know where to go to buy that, but then I'm not Jeff Bezos. So uh, it... um, So, this uh, so it sounds like if really you want to get into the absurd, the grotesque, the utterly bizarre, Amazon completely outcompetes these other services.
1: If you're looking for just grotesqueries, I think Amazon is your place to go. There are, I will, however, put a little asterisk on that. There are several services that. Amazon Prime is a subscription service, obviously. You have to have Amazon Prime to use it. Um, Amazon Prime is the only subscription service out there right now, and I'll actually give the evil empire of Jeff Bezos a minor shout-out in this case, um, although there's an entirely self-interested reason behind it. Um, this is the, Amazon Prime is the only service in the U.S. that will give you a discount if you're on public assistance. Uh-huh. So, my Amazon Prime service is discounted all the way down to $5, dollars 5 99 or something a month versus the normal, I think it's $12 or $15 that Amazon Prime service runs you if you just have a normal subscription because I receive food stamps. There's,
0: so there's actually a so process get to get straight.
1: cheaper Amazon Prime.
0: So Jeff Bezos recognizes your disability but the united states social security system doesn't and that this is in fact why we are where we are that somehow the um faceless uh mail giant and um uh provider of mail order lentils and bad videos um has You've managed to touch their conscience, but uh, not that of the U.S. federal government. So I think we're going to go to their conscience. Yes. Okay. So we're going to go to break. Uh, back in two minutes. It's after nine on ninety-three point one CFIS FM it's the uh, monday edition of after 9 uh on CFIS with uh, Stuart Parker i'm uh on the line with uh, Sean Frakoviac from Texas, we've hit upon the Kafkaesque nature of uh, trying to get uh, trying to survive being disabled in the U.S. Some of the uh, strangeness of um, the Amazon Prime catalog that perhaps uh, people should just glance at. Um, of course. They're, just to continue switching topics in an insane manner, um, the biggest news of the U.S. presidential uh, race uh, this week uh, came out of Texas over the weekend. Um, I understand we've lost Beto O'Rourke. What's going on there? The people of Texas seem to love him and then not so much. Are you asking me what happened yeah. to Beto? Yeah, <laughs> what, um, like, the, uh, I mean, there was all this sort of Beto O'Rourke mania, right, when he ran against Ted Cruz and Willie Nelson showed up and hugged him, and um, now he's vanished from U.S. presidential politics. Who was that guy? What happened to him?
1: Well, Beto was a, lo- was a local Texas phenomenon. I, I don't know who convinced him. Um, perhaps it was just the fact that the fact that he was running a close race against Ted Cruz became a national story, um, which I think overlooks the fact that Ted Cruz is perhaps the least liked politician in the U S <laughs> <laughs> at this point. I think Trump is probably outdistancing, but, but Ted Cruz is a loathsome human being. Um, I think even Ted Cruz recognizes that Ted Cruz is a, a loathsome human being. So it's so, so Beto running an almost successful campaign against him was notable, but certainly no sign that he should run for a national position. Um, I, I don't think Beto ever had the national standing that would, would really suggest him as a, a presidential candidate. Um, he would have been better served by running for the other um, Texas Senate position that's open this time around, John Cornyn's position. But who knows? He, he might actually run for that now that he's given up on, on president.
0: Yes, yeah, so I I read the the Guardian's review of his campaign when he dropped out, and the the quote I found most notable was, um, "If you're going to run for president, it should probably be about something." And
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, I read that as well. <laughs> what,
0: what was was he? What was he known for other than running against Ted Cruz? Like, was there anything?
1: Well, he wasn't a very I mean, I didn't know a lot about the fellow before he ran for Ted Cruz. I, I was a, I was amused and, and heartened by the fact that someone was running against Ted Cruz and and hoped that he would win. I I, I have a Beto T-shirt sitting in my drawer from that run, um, but but yeah, he wasn't a he wasn't a hugely famous guy before that run. Um, his the fact that he was going to every county in Texas to. The campaign was um, a nice thing to see. He, he was actually doing the legwork of trying to trying to to, to win his campaign. Um, he was he's a personal guy. You, you could find videos of him skateboarding with various youths on his stops. You um, in a punk band. Everyone likes guys that were in a punk band. Um, that that's a, a reasonable credit that you're he, a reasonable sign that you were a human being when you were in your 20s. That's
0: true, although we, um, I mean, in Canada here with the guy who came um, second in the race to become the leader of the NDP, Charlie Angus, the uh, Member of Parliament for Northern Ontario, he, um, he, I would argue, although he wasn't a punk band in his 20s, and he did use this as a credential when he ran, he, um, He was in a church punk band uh, and tried to sort of introduce this church punk subgenre that many of my punk friends feel did lasting damage to our national culture.
1: So you're saying he wasn't in a punk band?
0: That's a better way of saying it. Okay, on that note, uh, I'm going to let you go and uh, get back to reviewing films for us and um, hopefully have you on in the new year. Excellent. Have a good day, Stuart. All right. Bye, Sean. Okay, well, that was Sean for Koviak um, uh, He used to have a show like this uh, for the University of Oregon, so the abrupt topic changes um, were something that uh, I enjoyed about uh, getting to do this sort of thing. I'm going to – I was complaining about Charlie Angus, and I thought this might be the time to insert into the show my um, – my explanation for um, uh, why the show is once again different than I said it would be last week. It appears that it's not just the New Democratic Party of British Columbia that will not allow its uh, representatives on my show. Um... The Manitoba NDP had agreed on three separate occasions to put a couple of its members of the legislature who won back ridings in the North, like Prince George. I thought that would be interesting. Anyway, uh, they've bowed out again, as has, for I think the third or fourth time, as has Ravi Kalon, the... um, Uh, local parliamentary secretary for forests for BC. He's not willing to come on this show either. So um, I just want to say, New Democrats, if you stop doing media with people who've quit your party, um, as your number of members declines, so will your level of media coverage. It's pretty It's pretty petty to decide that um, you won't come to a forest-dependent riding as the parliamentary secretary to the minister of forest to talk about forestry. It's pretty petty to refuse to come to a northern riding like your own and talk about how you made yourself relevant to northerners. This is not a good direction. It's an echo chamber direction and uh, I'm always happy to have people on my show who disagree with me and uh, I think we can have a fair hearing. So, uh, New Democrats, do consider rethinking this. You seem a little cowardly and a little petty to not come to a riding with a major mill and talk about that mill. Uh, All right. On that note, we're going to go to break. uh, And when we come back, we're going to have Art Vandenberg, the um, multi-talented tech entrepreneur and former city councilor, talk to us about the electric vehicle revolution. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Hello, Stewards Vehicle Fleet. Um, and uh, so the Clean B C project uh, was um, is something that is branded as not just being an initiative of the NDP government they support but as a joint initiative of the Green Party and the NDP so what um, what's what are the selling points that uh, people like weaver are offering for clean BC
2: uh, am I online yes Sorry. at last uh, I, I actually haven't paid much attention to what uh, the politicians are saying I I tend to notice when they say something particularly dumb, or that strikes me as particularly dumb. But um, I've mostly been reading the actual documents. And so,
0: what's the substance of Clean BC? What is it that they're? uh, What are some of the notable features of it?
2: Well, um, it is a plan, such as it is, to uh, decarbonize and electrify the economy over several decades, and that's that's basically. When we're dealing with climate change, except for um, some changes that need to happen in agriculture and cement manufacturing, which I'll ignore for the sake of the call, uh, what we basically need to do is replace almost everything that involves burning a fossil fuel with uh, electricity. Um, now, that uh, there, you, you can see a lot of estimates around that this is going to cost some god-awful amount of electricity that's impossible, and those people are generally talking in petajoules. So a joule is the standard scientific um, measure of energy, right? You convert oil to petajoules and gas to petajoules and electricity to petajoules. And people will say, well, we need X number of petajoules to run the world as it is. So we'll need X number of petajoules of electricity. The first thing about that is you you really don't. You need about a quarter as many petajoules of electricity because uh, electricity, fuel is generally heat energy. You have to have an engine of some kind to convert it to useful work electricity can be converted to useful work at about 90-odd percent efficiency. Fuel can only be converted to something useful at about 25%. And that's even true of heat, because you can use a heat pump and move about four times as much heat energy with, you know, one unit of electricity. So Clean BC is basically a plan to replace the heating and uh, vehicles and all the various pumps in the economy, that kind of thing, with, with electricity. Now... That would be good if that's what it actually was and if it was on a fast enough schedule, but it isn't either of those things. Um, When you read it, I mean, the first thing they talk about is LNG. In a certain sense, from a political perspective, the Clean BC plan is a plan to disguise how much energy and emissions impact the LNG projects will have by having us conserve domestically. And... There will, in the end, if you look on a global level, be no emission savings at all from that. Because what they're basically going to do is we'll burn less oil and we'll burn less gas heating our homes, and then that material will be loaded on chips and sent somewhere else to be burned. There'll be no savings in emissions.
0: Right. So Clean BC is a way to make sure that. Uh other people emit the gas that we're fracking in the That's peace e- region
2: exactly what it is and um you know you can claim oh well maybe somebody else would make the lng in a dirtier way but the reality is is that you know that you see this argument with oil oh well if we didn't produce the oil saudi arabia would and isn't it better that we do it well firstly saudi Arabia's oil and the process of being produced and other people's gas often has lower emissions associated with production but more importantly when you put a barrel of oil or a, or a big unit of el- of liquidified natural gas on the global market, it's a market. It isn't a static thing. It responds to that, and over the, not over the short term, but over the medium to long term, more people will consume fuel. And it ends up being that, say, if you put a barrel of oil on the global market, you increase your exports of, by one barrel, half of that barrel would never have been burned if you hadn't sold the whole barrel, Right. So you can argue that Canada isn't responsible just for the emissions associated with production of fossil fuels. We're also responsible for the emissions associated with about half of the end use of the, destin- the destination burning the fossil fuel.
0: So um, uh, one more question before uh, we go to break. So um – how much electri- – so is the BC – is Clean BC saying BC will be using less energy by 2050
2: or the same amount or more? Um, again, you can't convert fossil fuel energy to electrical energy, but we will need more electrical energy. The total number of joules of energy will go down. But we'll need a significant amount more electrical energy. The There's a – I can make a fair number of points about – the BC overestimates the amount of electrical energy we'll need, though.
0: Yes, and I think we can come back to that. Uh, we'll take a short break, reintroduce you, and uh, recover from our wee technical glitch earlier. So stay okay. on the line. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. Hello, this is uh, Stuart Parker, host Monday edition of After 9. I have on the line from Vancouver a former city councillor, tech entrepreneur, and... Los Altos Institute fellow, Art Vandenberg. He's been analyzing the Clean BC plan and uh, has found some very odd anomalies in this document that's supposedly about making BC contribute less to climate change. So we talked before the break about um, the issue of exporting liquefied natural gas, something that we're going to be increasing under the plan but there are also some problems with the estimates of future electricity use. Can you take us into some of those inconsistencies?
2: Okay. Um, okay, so first to lay the groundwork, uh, BC Hydro currently produces something on the order of uh, 54 terawatt hours of energy a year. This will often be expressed in terms of its uh, gigawatts, but it's more relevant to talk about the amount of energy, not the peak capacity. So... Um, I think the the amount of energy say that we need to convert industry and all and home heating and, uh, and to be electric to something on the order of thirteen terawatts or terawatt hours. the amount of energy we would need to convert, say all of the private road vehicles, all the cars and trucks that we all own and the small businesses own, um, is also in the order of about nine or ten terawatt hours, right? Now, these are amounts you could almost fit into the current system. You wouldn't need to build too much extra infrastructure. The real surprise is the estimate for uh, trucking. Medium and heavy trucking, they're estimating something like 21 terawatt hours. So everyone is focusing on EVs. How will we power the EVs? But that isn't the elephant in the room. It isn't home heating, and it's not private vehicles. It's the trucks.
0: So it it sounds like they're proposing – Are they planning to increase the electrical vehicle fleet, or are they making electric vehicles that are just less efficient somehow?
2: Well, um, if you use straight battery electric trucks, right, and up until a few years ago, most sources tended to assume that we would end up using hydrogen vehicles, which are a whole other discussion. But it's turning out that battery uh, battery technology and cost is improving enough that it'll probably be the dominant technology in all kinds of things. Uh, so even for trucks that'll probably dominate, um, even if you use battery vehicles, which should be available in another five years, um, you would, the amount of energy saved emissions and energy use for all of the trucking in BC is about the same as the, all the private vehicles in most areas. It's a little less and here. It's about the same, but the clean BC plan doesn't assume that trucking will stay the same. Relative to the rest of the economy of the population, it assumes it'll grow by quite a bit, uh, depending on how you read it, between fifty percent and doubling in size relative to the number of people in the in the province. And this seems to be based on a study out of UBC that does little more than uh, what you know anybody uses Excel should be familiar with a polynomial curve fit. And it, you may as well be reading chicken entrails from my point of view, like. I don't quite understand how a plan for what to do with BC Hydro and to transportation in BC can be based on uh, such a shaky foundation. Uh, like, and, and the trends for trucking between 2000 and now are, it's kind of a random walk. It isn't a steady trend. So they're projecting a steady trend from a kind of, drunk and walk to the bathroom trend, right?
0: So can we not infer that if they're planning to have twice as many industrial – they're planning to put twice as many industrial vehicles on the road or at least 50% more industrial vehicles on the road, this would be consistent with significant increases in mining and logging activity in the province. We know that the liquefied natural gas plants are going to require – 200 new fracked wells per year in the peace region. Um, it seems like the government mu- is also projecting increases in the uh, allowable annual cut and increases in um, other forms of mining.
2: And uh, I, should, I think, you know, that's possible. There isn't any clear evidence of it. But um, And again, I, I'm not sure that you would need to believe that the UBC research is involved. Um, have an agenda to estimate a high-end number of trucks. I think that all you would need to do is for the people behind the Clean BC plan, who are political appointees, to pick and choose the studies that support the outcome that they want. Um, and they do seem to expect or desire a, a large increase in trucking. And as well, you know, the the amount of energy, there's a lot of energy used for pumping facilities, for fossil fuel infrastructure of all kinds. Right now, of the uh, the trucks on the road, the heavy trucks, about something like 10 or 12% are carrying gas and diesel. There's a kind of a... There isn't a lot of effort to unravel. um, If we convert all the road vehicles to electric, a lot of that road transport isn't going to be needed. If you could just look around the city, and during the middle of the day, you see all these little cars running around with car parks. Well, electric vehicles don't need anywhere near as much maintenance, which is sort of sad for the auto maintenance industry. But you're not going to have a lot of these delivery vehicles running around. You're not going to have uh, big tankers running to gas stations. And so uh, you would expect the amount of trucking to actually go down, all things being equal.
0: And Andrew Weaver's a scientist, right? He. he... Um, so it would have been hard for him not to notice a massive increase in the industrial vehicle fleet in the signature achievement of his time in office.
2: It is a little bit hard to explain, and the um, but his proposal for a refinery is even harder to explain. Even if you believe the um, schedule of transition to electric vehicles that Clean B.C. and the federal liberals are putting out, which is that we'll switch to 100 percent sales of new vehicles, not even converting the vehicles on the road, that'll take another 10 years, but just sales by 2040, um, the amount of fuel we need from refineries in Canada should be collapsing in only about 15 years. It would take 10 years to eat, just build a refinery. So he was proposing to build a refinery that someone in his position and just 10 minutes of thought should realize would never be needed.
0: It um, It is a mysterious uh, thing that the Green Party of British Columbia uh, seems to be. Uh, obviously, they have a chance to do a reset on this and select a new leader. But you were talking about um, questions of sales and the larger market for electric vehicles. So when we return from the break, why don't we dive into our North America-wide situation and some of the peculiarities of the Tesla company? after nine on 93.1 CFIS FM. Well, this is uh, After Nine, Monday edition. Stuart Parker here on with Art Vandenberg and uh, talking about electric vehicles. Now, Of course, we were talking about the Clean BC plan. That assumes that uh, there's a way in which we think that a plan like that is fixed. But of course, the BC government recently cut the subsidies uh, to the purchase of electric vehicles because of their extraordinary popularity. how are electric vehicle sales doing in um, a place in North America where governments are cutting subsidies the Trump administration is getting in the way? How are electric vehicle sales holding up?
2: They're basically doing uh, really well in areas where there's support from the government. And it doesn't just and it isn't just the subsidies that matter. It's having the charging infrastructure in place, things like requiring condos to provide a power outlet that that people can use to charge at home. Um, having uh, fast chargers so it's possible to make a road trip and only stop for 20 minutes every three hours, right? So BC Hydro is putting in fast chargers, not quickly enough, but they are doing it, Um, and there aren't enough in the north yet. But um, you need that infrastructure for it to be practical to own the vehicle and do much other than go around town. So in areas where that uh, boost is occurring, sales are going much faster than they expected. They expected to reach about 10% EV sales in B.C., according to the Clean B.C. plan, in 2025. We're actually, we were probably going to hit 10% this year if the NDP didn't cut the incentives. They're already at
0: 6%. So that's, uh, that's a pretty rapid switch. And um, But, of course, you know, um, there's uh there's a lot wrapped up in what motivates people to purchase an electric vehicle uh beyond just a concern about the environment or a concern about their fuel bill Um, and obviously a lot of the water for the image of electric vehicles has been carried by uh the head of tesla elon musk um and it's almost as though there's um a social movement following him. He's the face of electric vehicles. What portion of electric vehicle sales does Tesla actually account for?
2: Uh, I believe the Model 3 accounts for 75% in North America. It's less in Europe, but um, it's pretty significant, We're like one car model.
0: And so a lot of this then rides on the public image of Elon Musk and what he says um, these vehicles are about. Now, uh, this idea that Musk is some sort of visionary, mad genius that he's sort of unbalanced—it seems like—is this something he's trying to stoke in his public image, or is this just authentic Elon it's Musk?
2: Hard to tell. I think it's a mix. Um, he does seem to be genuinely a somewhat damaged and struggling person. Uh, his, uh, let's say, like last year, the whole he was really crazy and said the stuff on Twitter about the pedo guy and whatever. Well, in the beginning of that year, his father, who he describes as evil, uh, had a baby with his stepsister. <laughs> so there's a lot of drama in his life in the, in the background. Um, this is somebody who probably is struggling every day. Uh, and and maybe, I, I tend to think that it took somebody high, willing to take risks and who was... Um, a little bit, you know, hungry for drama to take on a problem like converting the car industry or, or space launch. Um, to, it's it's hard to disentangle. Like I think he genuinely might be, the Howard Hughes of our time, and we're watching that, unplay as a drama in front of us. Um, Do you
0: think that um, that flamboyant image has helped or hindered uh, the uptake of electric vehicles in North America?
2: I think it's helped, although the vehicles actually had to also work. Um, And it wasn't clear at, at first it wasn't clear they could get the vehicles to work. There are a lot of crazy people, including crazy billionaires, coming out of places like Silicon Valley. Right. And actually, the history of both electric vehicles and reusable rocket launches and private rocket launch are very similar in that. Every few years, some rich guy comes along, he's made his money somewhere else, and he tries to take a crack at the thing that's his dream, that he wants to be the hero who makes this difficult thing happen. And they almost always fail. So uh, this this guy succeeded at both. When the rockets land and the cars ship, it changes a lot of people's minds. If he hadn't succeeded, he would just be another billionaire flake. The fact that he did succeed, first at producing the vehicles, that people wanted and then producing them at scale, several hundred thousand a year for roughly the average price of a car in North America, which is surprisingly high. Um, it is pretty convincing. And the other thing you need to focus on is that, um, although starting a car company is hard and, you know, and I don't like, I think the, the, the genius engineer thing is possibly a bit overblown, but, um, the, the key thing is that he did something that the auto industry was refusing to do, and in the rocket industry as well. He was doing something that an industry didn't want to do. These two things both have that in common. The auto industry does not want to produce electric cars at all. They're like a the, uh, dog being dragged into the vet to have its nad snipped, right? Like, they absolutely do not want to do this thing, and they want to delay it as long as possible. They know eventually they're going to be forced to do it, They'd rather it happen somewhere out at 2040 or 2050. And so when they produced electric cars, because they were mandated to, there's actually a term for them, they're called compliance cars, which sounds exactly what it, it is. They're being forced to make something they don't want to make, so they don't make enough of them, and they make them kind of nerdy and not much fun. So all Tesla had to do to succeed was do something, first, that's very difficult, which is to start a car company, and second, to just make a good car okay well
0: that um that's an oddly hopeful note to end things on uh i've been inside one of these vehicles myself and it it's true it's a it's a whole different uh physical experience i guess that um that they're selling rather than a an inferior version of the regular car experience so uh art i want to thank you very much for uh for coming on and uh will, I'm sure, be returning to clean B.C. as uh, this government enters its third year.
2: Okay, Uh, thanks for having me on. All right, bye-bye.
0: Okay, well, that was uh, the Monday edition of After 9, and in future... uh, I will, um, uh, I'll try and keep you up to date on who the guests are going to be. But after my experience with these charming new Democrats, I think I'm going to hold off on telling you uh, who's coming on next week until I get their signature in blood. So uh, this is Stuart Parker, your Monday edition host. We'll uh, see you after Remembrance Day uh, two weeks hence.